Welcome to Off The Beaten Track. This is a follow-up podcast to our video episode exploring some of Bristol's more idiosyncratic place names. You can see that online. Go to YouTube and type in A Good Walk Spoiled History Podcast and you'll find it. Hello, Phil, by the way. Uh, how are you? I'm here. Hello. Hello, Ross. I've had a coffee and I don't usually uh, drink coffee. You're all over the place. Uh, I'm buzzing around like a wasp in a jar. You went for the large caramel yeah. macchiato. I went medium. Yeah. I'm feeling the effects, I have to say. Mm. It's, uh, uh, yeah. Smoke coming out of my ears. Yep. Now, off the beaten track. This is where we recap and explore some of the things we were talking about in the video. And we're going to start with a few more rude place names. Before we start, I think there's a bit of an issue. Mm. Shall we say with the uh, piquant nature of some of the words involved. But never fear, I have a solution. There's your classic, sensors beep. But don't worry, I've got an array at my disposal. That's quite an impressive soundboard. Yeah. If required, it's there. So, well, the first one is Shitterton. The hamlet in Dorset. The name Shitterton dates back at least a thousand years and means farmstead on the stream used as an open sewer. Uh, the town was uh, renamed Sitterton in the Victorian period. Okay. But the name didn't stick. It's not the only place in England, though, to begin with the word sh- There's also Shittlehope and Shittlington Crags. I think Shitlington Crags is my favourite place name ever that I've ever read. I've noticed a strong inconsistency in your censorship work, i.e. you're not beeping everything. Uh, No, the BBFC, this is not. (laughs) So you've just done this to annoy me? No. Now, being inspired, we've looked up some... Right, stop. (laughs) You've You've ruined this episode. But there is a more academic side to this, uh, in that you can tell often uh, a place's history from its name, its prefixes and its suffixes. So a classic example is Manchester, for instance, with the uh, suffix Chester, which is similar to Caster and Sester. Right. So as in Sester, like Siren Sester, or Caster, like... Caster Sugar. Um, Doncaster. Doncaster. Those are understood to be places which were once the site of a Roman castrum, which was a military camp, or even um, a, a prehistoric fort that was formerly there, and then the Romans named it as such. So it's likely that places ending in those suffixes have some Roman history. Indeed. Yes. And this doesn't end there. In the Saxon period, place names ending in ham, yep. like uh, Corsham, uh, or places ending in ton, like Taunton, those both Saxon words meaning settlement or farmstead. So again, the same thing. And in the Norman period, you get lots of very interesting names. For example, Ashby de la Zouche, Phil. Mm-hmm. Ever been there? I've not. No, nor have I. No. The town was originally known as Ashby in 1086. That's during the that's the time of the Doomsday Book, of course, 1086, uh, after the Norman conquest of Britain. Uh, Ashby means ash tree farm originally, or ash tree settlement. But later, during the reign of Henry III, it came under the possession of the Lazouche family. Hence, the name changed to Ashby de la Zouche, because the Lazouches were showing everybody the land that they uh, land that they owned. There's lots of very interesting place names like that. In Britain. Reflecting the history and the people that once lived there. It's not just the UK that's place names reflect a, a history of, of, of what happened there. Uh, for instance, Fiddletown, California. Fiddletown. Fiddletown. <laughs> a gold mining settlement dating back to the Californian gold rush of 1849. When the river ran dry, the miners were said to be fiddling around. Hence, Fiddletown. 
A local resident successfully lobbied to have the name changed to Aletta in 1878, stating that he didn't want to be known as the man from Fiddletown. Perfectly reasonable request. Mm. Aletta was named after his daughter. Okay. But it was changed back after he died. Oh, right. They did that to placate him, and then as soon as he popped his clogs, right, back to Fiddletown. That's, that's is Fiddle- it still that's- there, Fiddletown? Fiddletown, California. It is still there. Population, total, 235. So there's 235 people from Fiddletown? Yep. Uh-huh, okay. If anybody from Fiddletown's listening... Oh, yeah. Give us a shout. Give, give, write, us, write to us, won't you? We want to know what it's like to live in Fiddletown. Ooh, 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 do, 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 Fiddletown. That's a, that's a song. That's a song called Sugartown, isn't it? Oh, is it? Nancy Sinatra, Sugartown. Would you like to hear that? No. Would you like to hear that? No. Are you sure? <laughs> it's we playing. We, we can't afford the copyright anyway. I think you can get away with it on grounds of uh, fair use. Fair use. Mm. I think it's fair use. I'll go. Sh- I'll jump straight to the chorus, shall I? Fiddletown. <laughs> Thanks, Nancy. Okay, moving on. Pet bottom. Pet, Onwards and upwards. Pet bottom. Pet bottom. Where's pet? Where's pet bottom? That's in Kent. But it had a famous fictional resident. Only James Bond. James Bond lived in pet bottom. Yes, he lived in pet bottom with his auntie after the death of his parents. He's an orphan, wasn't he, uh, James Bond? In he the was. Yeah. I think his parents died in a skiing accident. Almost certainly that's an in-joke by Ian Fleming, that, that he lived in somewhere called Pet Bottom. This is the man who wrote in, what, Pussy Galore? Um, yeah. Uh, trying to think of other... Honey Rider, Diamonds Are Forever, Plenty O'Toole. You think of all the rude place names in the world, and they're heavily outpunned by Ian Fleming. Moving on. Did you know, Phil, that yep. the, the village of Dull in Scotland is twinned with the town of Boring in Oregon. And the town of Boring in Oregon is twinned with Bland in New South Wales in Australia. Have you fallen asleep? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I really? Thought, I thought that was interesting. I thought, well, that no, is very yeah. interesting. That sounds like a PR Yes, definitely massive PR. And then they thought, who else can we get involved in this? Well, let's, let's call Bland New South Wales. Would that have been possible without the internet? Do you reckon these, these links have been made only since Google arrived? I, I think that's right, yeah. So as we've seen before, every now and then, if a community doesn't like the name of their street or town, they can lobby to get it changed. Uh, recently, it's happened, in Doncaster, the road now known as Archer's Way was changed in 2009 from Butthole Road. Butthole Road. Butthole why Road. Why was it called? Why would? Why would it possibly have been called Butthole Road before? Well, the locals think that it was named after a communal water butt. Oh right, okay. Okay. So B U double T. Yeah, uh, a storage for for rainwater. Yeah, so, yeah. But they were encountering many problems with uh, mainly tourists apparently posing with a sign and sometimes mooning. Right, okay. Next to the sign. Next to the sign. Yeah. I've got, a, I've got another one for you. It's not, <laughs> it's not uh, rude, but there is a place... Oh, in, this is one of my favourites. Yeah, me too. In Missouri, called Humansville. Yeah. Which sounds like the most boring, unimaginative name. Often, you know, if you look at the American name, a lot of American names uh, are very literal. Oh, they're great though, aren't they? Yeah. 
because the language hasn't changed, they're less kind of cryptic. So humansville just sounds to me like someone's come along and can't possibly think of anything to call it. So this is where humans live. We'll call it humansville. It's actually named after James Human, who settled there in 1834, but still a fantastic name. Here's a slightly different one, and a nod to our European cousins. There's a place in Portugal called Fail. I suppose it's slightly different, though, because Fail obviously means something different in Portuguese. Yeah, it's like Batman in Turkey. Wasn't the mayor of Batman in Turkey suing... Yeah, he uh, sued He sued Christopher Nolan, the director of um, the Batman films, of, over what he claimed to have been use of the word Batman without the permission from Batman province in uh, Turkey, which is the biggest, the, the biggest load of shitterton I've ever heard in my life. I was going to say, because, because the, the, the name Batman... is later. It, than, much later, isn't yeah, it? I mean, it wasn't, I think it was changed in the 50s mm. in Turkey. Yeah. And so, he, interestingly, he didn't um, sue DC Comics. He decided to sue Christopher Nolan specifically. Personally, personally yeah. yeah. I don't think that lawsuit went anywhere. Um, okay, that's a few uh, funny place names. Of course, we did mention a lot of other uh, information on our uh, walk around Bristol. Not least of all, when we were on There and Back Again Lane, J.R.R. Tolkien. Of course, the name we think There and Back Again Lane comes from The Hobbit, which was written by John Ronald Ruel Tolkien. That's his full name. Did you know that Tolkien, uh, in 1919, started his career at the Oxford English Dictionary? No. And he's responsible for a lot of words beginning, the definitions of a lot of words beginning with W, specifically the words in between uh, Waggle and Warlock. Oh, wow. So he wrote the definitions for all the words in between those two words. Yeah, so next time you're rifling through the dictionary on a uh, Sunday afternoon, Phil, because I know that's what you like to do to uh, waste time. While away the hours. Exactly. Waiting for the day to end. Apparently, he struggled with the word walrus because the etymology of the word was so difficult. He came up with six different versions of the etymology of the word walrus. Talking of Tolkien, Tolkien was, of course, a polyglot. So somebody who spoke many different languages. Yeah. He learned French, German and Latin from his mother and studied Middle English, Old English, Gothic, Greek, Latin, Old Norse. It goes on. Medieval Welsh. He also became familiar with Dutch, Danish, uh, an old German language called Lombardic, Russian, Norwegian, Serbian, Swedish. Bloody hell. He was proficient, apparently, in 35 languages in total. That's incredible, isn't it? That is, that is remarkable. I, 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 mean, I struggle with English. I don't know about you. N- no. Mm. Apart from, I speak fluent French. Oh, yes, we've mentioned that before. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, he also created, of course, Phil, his own languages for his literary work, including Elvish, later called Quenya or High Elven. I think I've pronounced that correctly. I'm sure there's lots of people online who will inform me strongly whether I've pronounced that correctly or not. And uh, Cinderin or Grey Elven. I can see your eyes glazing over again. Cinderin you're, you're not Grey Elven. I mean, you're not a Tolkienophile, are you? No, you're not, not really. really. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's the kind of fantasy fiction I'm not. You know, Lord, you've never seen Lord of the Rings, any of them. Oh no, I've watched. I've seen some of them. I've never watched the whole film all the way through. Well, it's they're, they're ubiquitous at Christmas, aren't they? You can't mm. help but see them. See, see them. See that or them. Harry Potter. He also spoke Esperanto. Did he? What, Tolkien? Mm-hmm. Okay. Another made-up Another made up language. Well, I guess all languages are made up, aren't they? To they some, are. To some degree. Uh, yeah, to some degree, to every degree. Yeah. From 1 to 360. Now, being inspired, we've looked up some more historical polyglots. Cleopatra, pharaoh of Egypt, 1st century BC. She spoke nine languages, according to Plutarch, and usually she didn't require an interpreter for diplomatic meetings. Her mother tongue was Greek, 
but she also spoke Egyptian perfectly. The only member of her dynasty who could do so. That was the Greek dynasty that took over Egypt in 323 BC, Alexander the Great, and then uh, a lot of Greek rulers. She was the seventh Cleopatra. There are 14 Ptolemies, seven Cleopatras. The one that we know, the most famous one, was the seventh Cleopatra. And she was the only one of all of those rulers, the only one of 21 rulers of Egypt, after the Greeks took it, to bother learning Egyptian. Fair play to her. I imagine she had a fair bit of time on her hands. I don't know what, what pharaohs do, do, but... Yeah, sit around being wafted with yeah. ferns. They yeah. rule, don't they? Bathing in ass's milk. Fast forward 1,600 years. Yes. Elizabeth I, Queen of England, another polyglot. She spoke 10 languages. That's one-upmanship from Cleopatra, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's why she did it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just to did, be the best, the best female leader of all time. The, you know, the incumbent uh, monarch, Elizabeth II, speaks, yeah. flu- unlike you, speaks fl- fluent French. Oh, goodness. Did, did you know that? I didn't know that, no. No, anyway, going back to... Uh, Elizabeth- she was homeschooled, wasn't she? What, the Queen? Yeah. Was she? I think she was. Shall we look her up? This is off Wikipedia. Historian David Starkey describes Elizabeth II in his 2007 television documentary series Monarchy as poorly learned, comparing her to a housewife in terms of her cultural refinement and intellectual curiosity. That's offensive on quite a few levels. I much prefer Simon Sharma, Sharma, the king naked before his subjects, the people very much paying for blood. But what was the king to do? That's uh, thanks. Thanks for coming in, Simon. Thank you. We can't afford. We can't afford Simon Sharma, can we? Well, that was certainly do for now. Anyway, yeah, anyway, back to Elizabeth I. She spoke ten languages. Mm-hmm. List them: English, uh-huh. Latin, French, Spanish, Dutch, Italian, but also Cornish, so she could order a pasty in the native tongue. Welsh, Scottish, and Irish. All bases covered. Yeah, absolutely. For the what, British Isles. In, uh, in 1603, the Venetian ambassador stated that she possessed languages so thoroughly that each appeared to be her native tongue. Incredible. Hell of a polyglot, Elizabeth I. But based on just pure number of languages learnt, she's overshadowed by Cardinal Caspar Mezzofanti, an Italian clergyman uh, of the late 18th and early 19th century. He spoke 39 languages fluently, and had at least a basic knowledge in 30 or so more. I mean, the, the, the mind boggles. Let's move on to Lord Walsingham, the man who shot 1,070 grouse in one single day. Remember him, Phil? How could I forget? Well, I think you owe the people of Australia an apology. Because oh, yeah. you erroneously said... Yep, that, true. Uh, <laughs> It was the Australian... I am convinced, still to this day, to yep. this hour, that I saw a documentary about uh, the rabbit infestation problem in australia being cured yep. partly by them using rabbits as biofuel i.e burning them for power but subsequently we've looked this up on the internet and yep. it turns out it's our friends in sweden and i can genuinely find almost no reference i think to rabbit biofuel in australia please correct us if we're internet. right or wrong or whatever. Well, remember that I mentioned that Lord Walsingham killed 1,070 grouse in a single day on Blubberhouses Moor in 1888. Blubberhouses Moor? Yeah. That, what's the etymology of Blubberhouses Moor? Well, the, the poor grouse crying, I imagine. <laughs> Actually, I looked up what he did with those grouse. He gave most of them away. If you look at these old uh, hunting uh, big uh, estates where they do a lot of shooting in this period, the late 19th century, and Lord Walsingham said himself that it's a way of giving 
grouse to people who weren't able to otherwise eat grouse. He's like he's performing a civic duty by killing a thousand grouse. That's the way he sort of justifies it to himself. It's the idea of noblesse oblige, isn't it? I think there was this idea of, uh, of, of nobles looking after the people that are living uh, within their grounds and thus their care. Now, Lord Walsingham kept a detailed record of the day, which now apparently hangs in the downstairs toilet at the Merton, which is the family estate in Norfolk. So sit back, Phil, relax, and I'll uh, detail his day of grouse aside. I thought I'd take you through his uh, maniacal rampage in more detail. So the day started at uh, 12 minutes past five in the morning. Oh, that's early. With the first of 20 drives carried out by two teams of 40 beaters. A beater is someone who drives the birds out of cover with a stick or something like that. He shot uh, every bird himself, but used three different guns and had two loaders. Now, during the 16th drive, okay. he shot 94 grouse in 24 minutes. That's a kill rate of one grouse every 13 seconds. How did he not get bored? And bear in mind this quote. I distinctly remember firing three barrels at one bird, striking well in the body every time, but killing dead only with the last shot. Can you imagine the carnage? I don't know how many cartridges he must have gone through. The last drive finished at 6.45, and then he decided to walk home. And as we know, he shot 14 grouse on the walk home. And that uh, is the end of the tale of uh, the six Baron Walsingham's um, carnage fueled rampage on the moor. Day of death. Have you ever been hunting? I haven't, no. No, nor have I. I've been clay pigeon shooting. Don't you have a baseball cap? Yeah. Desert Lake Shooting Club. (laughs) From? From Las Las Vegas. Las Vegas. You you told me it no longer exists. It doesn't, no. And we booked a a day there, Mm. or an afternoon there, uh, as part of a stag do. Talking of stag do's, we're going on a stag do this afternoon. Just hours away. Yes. We're going to dress up as Romans. In, in Bath. In Bath, which is pretty fitting. Yep. Anyway, there we go. That's the end of Lord Walsingham and his grouse bonanza. Actors who were too old for their historical roles, I see on the notes. This was inspired by King Dick Lane and our conversation about Sean Connery, who was in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, at the very end of the film, and he was 60 when he played that role. Richard I, who he plays, was, was 41 when he died. But Sean Connery also played Indiana Jones's dad in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Harrison Ford was 47 when he made The Last Crusade. Mm. Sean Connery, who plays Indy's father, is just 12 years older than Ford. 12 years old? 12 years. So I suppose... I mean, that's, that's pushing it even for the medieval period. <laughs> it's, it's probably doable, just. <laughs> I think I've read a Daily Mail article about oh, yeah, all the something sun. similar. Yeah. Uh, I've got another one for you. Alexander the Great's mother... Olympias, uh, who was played by Angelina Jolie in the film uh, Alexander. Angelina Jolie was 29 and only one year older than Colin Farrell when she played uh, his mother. Okay, so the, Colin Farrell's 28, she's 29 and yeah. she's playing his mum. So I, I see you're 12 and raise you one. 11 years. Yeah, one year old. Um, the real uh, Olympias, uh, Alexander's mother, was 19 when she gave birth to Alexander. Uh, anyway, uh, what about Jimmy Stewart at the age of 47? Oh. Jimmy Stewart Jimmy Stewart played the 25 year old Charles Lindbergh in the Spirit of St. Louis in 1957 that's the aviator who first flew across the Atlantic in the Spirit of St. Louis of course the plane age of 47 playing a 25 year old just an aside to that favourite favourite planes that pardon the pun never got off the ground or only once got off the ground yeah prototypes 
The Hughes H4 Hercules, right? Better known as everyone will know this. The Spruce Goose. Oh yeah, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. It says it's a prototype strategic airlift flying boat designed and built by the Hughes Aircraft Company. The aircraft made only one brief flight on November 2nd, 1947, and the project never advanced beyond the single example produced. Okay, so he's trying to make air, air travel across the sea. Well, I think it was more along the lines of not needing a runway. What's your favourite plane? My favourite plane ever? Yeah. That's quite a big question. I'd say Dastardly and Muttley's plane from... Stop the pigeon. <laughs> not the spruce goose. Not the spruce goose. Ah. Did you know that cartoon is not called Stop the Pigeon or Catch the Pigeon? Oh. It's actually called Dastardly and Mutsley in their flying machines. Ah. What's your favourite plane? Maybe, well, I do like the Blackbird, the SR-71. Oh, what a plane. Yeah, great so plane. It's incredible. It leaks oil on the ground because it's... Aircraft uh, fuel. Sorry, aircraft fuel. Potato, potato. Or kerosene. Well, they're totally different things, but yeah. Uh, because it's designed to operate at such high altitude. Incredible. Yeah. We've strayed slightly from uh, actors who are too old for their historical roles. Okay. But we can bring it back on with Sean Connery again. Yes. Not, these are non-historical roles this time. Yeah, not really historical. But, of course, Sean Connery played James Bond at 53 in Never Say Never Again. He in, did. Yeah. So the film's a pun on... Oh, that's my phone. Someone's not turned his phone off. <laughs> Yes, the film name is a pun on the fact that he said he would never go back, and of course he did. Roger Moore also played yeah. Bond. Well, even older, wasn't he? In A View to a Kill. And he was 58. 58, almost like a free bus pass kind of age. Where's 007? He's on the number 52. He's running, he's running 10 minutes late. <laughs> or actually, he'd be on the number 58, wouldn't he? Oh, very good. That's uh, a list of uh, actors too old to play their parts. We've mentioned Sean Connery a lot in this podcast. Yeah. He's been the uniting factor, I think. Sean Connery, ironically, isn't the uniting factor, is he? Because he was for Scottish independence, so... Ah! Hasn't he got a, a Scotland Forever tattoo? On, on his, his arm. Oh, I thought it was on his arm. <laughs> it's on his arm, is it? No, I think it's on his arm. I okay. think it's the tattoo that um, gets covered up. So in all of the James Bond films, you can see uh, a big lump of makeup that's covering his tattoos up. Uh, we were talking about ice houses, if you remember, Phil, on Bigwood Lane. Okay. Uh, buildings used to store ice throughout the year. Oh, yes, ice houses. Buildings commonly found in the grounds of stately homes. Yeah, well, the first recorded ice house comes from a tablet from ancient Mesopotamia in... 1780 BC. BC? Yeah. Uh, there's also evidence of ice pits in China from the 7th century BC. And in Rome, in the 3rd century AD, snow was imported from the mountains and sold in snow shops in the city. Isn't that incredible. So in the 19th and uh, early 20th century, ice was traded as a commodity. A forgotten trade. A forgotten trade by some, but not by us. The trade focused primarily on the procurement, transport and sale of natural ice. It was focused on the eastern seaboard of the United States and Norway, predominantly. The trade was started by New England businessman Frederick Tudor, known as Boston's Ice King, in 1806, when he had the idea of transporting ice from New England to the Caribbean island of Martinique. He sold his ice to the wealthy European elite that lived there. By the end of the 19th century, the ice trade in the United States alone employed 90,000 people. Norway exported a million tonnes of ice a year from a network of artificial lakes. Lake ice in particular was prized because of its clarity. Oh, right. And so you could see straight through it. It was like a sheet of glass. Looks good in a gin and tonic. It certainly does. During the early 20th century, refrigeration systems and factory-made ice quickly superseded the ice trade. 
Interestingly, as a consequence, the industry magazine Ice Trade Journal mm. changed its name to Refrigerating World. The time, how times change. That was, of course, before global warming, Refrigerating World. And now it's changed its name again to Non-Refrigerating World. <laughs> Well, that's a nice summary of the ice trade there. The fascinating forgotten world of the ice trade. Anyway, that's about all we have time for. Off the beaten track. Yep. We've been through a lot of place names, historical polyglots. Lord Walsingham and his um, hatred of grouse. His uh, fetish for murdering grouse. <laughs> and actors who were too old for their historical uh, roles. And of course, the ice trade. Yep. A lot of bases covered, I think. So as we prepare to toga up for our stag do. Well, you're wearing a toga. I've got like a, a, a fake uh, a bit of armour. Oh, you're a military yeah. uniform. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm the academic, you're the brain. psychopathic soldier. <laughs> yeah, that's correct, yeah. I've uh, traded in the toga for the gladius and the peeler. That's the short sword and the spear. So if you cross me in Bath this evening, you could be in for a bit of trouble. That's quite ominous, wasn't a st- it? A sticky end. Sticky end? That sounds like another rude place <laughs> name. So from Shitlington Crags to Sticky End, we'll see you next time on A Good Walk Spoiled. Goodbye. Goodbye.